Hello there. My guest today is Danielle Steer. She's the managing director of Lunar Startups. Lunar is based in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it specializes in growth, connection, and innovation for Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ+, women, and non-binary entrepreneurs. Their mission is economic empowerment through inclusive entrepreneurship. They have an accelerator, a digital learning platform, and are in the process of raising an investment fund. My conversation with Danielle is a rich one. We talk about her own growth and development and her commitment to self-awareness and self-reflection. We also talk about the unique gifts and some of the unique challenges that are experienced by the founders that she supports. Danielle has long been active in the social impact investment space, and she is tremendously insightful about how entrepreneurship can help change communities and economies for the better. So thank you for joining me for this conversation with Danielle. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. There are so many things that we could talk about because uh, you have such an interesting life and work, but I think I'd just like to start by asking you, what are you really excited about right now in this phase of your work life? The way you just asked that question, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. I think like this phase of my work life, I'm the type of person, I set like 10-year goals. There's these big, long ambitions that I'm interested in or, or personal changes or behavioral changes or, you know, familial changes. And, and so I have often set these like 10-year kind of ambitions and working towards them, knowing that the point from A to Z is never straight and Z might look very, you know, like Z instead. There's like all these other ways it can happen. And I think that I'm in this point of exciting transition where I'm starting to see a lot of the fruits. I can like, it's no longer like a, a fuzzy pain window where I can kind of, you know, imagine what that future looks like. It's really starting to take form and shape um, in terms of this these goals that I've set out. So I think right now what's bringing me a lot of energy is I'm feeling like the time and dedication and the relationships that I've been really heavily investing in over the past seven years now that I've been in the Twin Cities are taking form in a way that I'm getting to a point that I'm, I think, moving into a new place of impact, a new place of fulfillment, a new place of, I think, confidence that I'm, I'm just really enjoying this like repositioning and like stepping into this power and also the continued ability to like collaborate and know more about myself and how to continue to be better at collaborating with others. So I know that's a little squishy in terms of what's exciting me around where I'm at my career, but I think that that like solidification, especially in a time where I think the whole world feels so out of control, there's also something really satisfying about you know, the things you've been working towards, like making traction and progress and seeing those milestones ticked off. Yeah, I actually really love that response because I feel like it takes some nuanced self-reflection to notice 
oh, I, I feel more myself than I used to. Or look at the way that these relationships I've been building over years are beginning to bear fruit or beginning to yield. Or look at the way that I feel like I can walk into a room or a conversation with so much more confidence than I did when I started. And I think noticing those incremental changes that happen within us is such a superpower for mental well-being for entrepreneurs, because often, you know, the slog is long. And especially in the work that you do, you're investing so much in, in people, in businesses, in relationships, and all these things that do take some time to yield. You don't always see the like quick return on everything. Well, and I think that the, especially in startup land, there's so much emphasis on fast, more, better. And a lot of times there's not... I think the same value and energy given to slow and reflect and even like the, the juicy parts of change that are required. I think the other thing that I think has made me more confident is that even when I am noticing like, yes, I'm doing a thing that I set out to, I don't beat myself up when I, when I like revert, I don't have the same, type of, I think like internal dialogue around like, I wanted to do this thing and I did it twice, but then why couldn't I do it the third time? You know, it's like, okay, uh, now I can notice what maybe like helped me to settle back in that place of comfort or old behavior or whatever it might be. And then how do I step back into where I want to be? Um, and I think that that, that flipping the script a little bit has also just allowed me to continue to like build, build myself up more authentically and to remain in that place of confidence and not to say I don't, you know, have self-doubt or other things, right? That's just the human experience. But I feel like I've put a lot of systems around me to really reinforce and to help me get through those moments of challenge in a different way that I didn't have in my early 20s, my late 20s, my early 30s, right? So that feels like such a privilege. Yeah. And I, I love the flexibility there. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm privileged to work with so many people who are really driven, high performing type folk. You are one of those. and I'm one of those. We have things we want to do in our lives. And I think sometimes the strategy toward whether it's launching a product or starting a business or even thinking about one's own self-development can be so checklist based, right? Did I do my miracle morning routine? Did I get my burpees in? Did I drink my green smoothie? Like, or, or whatever it is. And so the checkbox is helpful, tracks progress, but I see so many people who have great plans and intentions about how they're going to grow or develop or launch something, but then don't know what to do when there's a setback, right? Like when the world is disrupted and nobody's plans go according to how we expected, or when you just don't feel good one morning. And so you've disrupted the, the pattern of all of the boxes checked. And I think a lot of people get in their head about, well, now I have to start over or, well, I wasn't successful. I have to, you know, I can't do it. Or, so I, I think the flexibility around how you are resilient when plans don't go. Sounds like something that you've been learning in a really lovely, deep way. Well, and, and I think it's about self-awareness. You know, I think um, I've had the privilege of having people sh hold a mirror up or taking a great personality test. You know, there's a lot of benefit to that. And I, I think that like my own personality type, when I identify something 
you know, that could be perceived as a weakness or that I feel could be a weakness, my brain immediately goes to like hacker format. Okay. How do we flip this? How do we turn this into something that's going to work? Or when I identify a strength, knowing like this could backslide on me in this way, like I need to be paying attention to that. And, and it doesn't mean I'm, you know, I still have my moments where I get really reactive. Um, I'm a, like a, a very bright person in terms of like how I live. And so sometimes I have like these huge emotional, you know, responses to things. I'm guessing you're not that good at poker. (laughs) Like for a lot of reasons, but especially that, because I'd be like all smug, you know, with my full house or something. But I, I think that that care around self-awareness, because the, again, the flipping the script on knowing something about yourself that is a weakness and instead saying, great, I know a thing about me. How can I use that thing to meet a goal? And I think, again, it's just, it comes with grace and kindness. If there's anything that my team and I talk about all the time that we learned through this pandemic is that we all deserve a lot more grace. We are not frontline care providers. I am not doing brain surgery. (laughs) And I think that that reframing a little bit has helped us to say, like, when we're in these high stress moments and it feels like everything's on the line to just go, what is really important right now. Um, And sometimes that means the work pauses and, you know, we're at home with a kiddo because the school is closed down (laughs) or, you know, or like, I know that scenario well, (laughs) or suddenly she's been on her iPad for five hours. And my internal mom dialogue is like, Oh my gosh, her brain's going to get fried and all these things. And it's like, no, she's fine. Totally fine. That's what this day is. <laughs> so I, I think a lot of that comes from like a willingness to to be self-aware and to work on that self-awareness too. How does the the insight or just value of self-awareness come into your work as the director of lunar startups? Obviously, you're helping to support all of these entrepreneurs, business owners who are launching things and motivated and going for it. And yeah, how do you bring in that sense of mm, slower, more sustainable, more self-aware? How does that, how does that play with that crew? Good question. And I think that's where it's easy for me to almost toggle a little bit. Like I know one of my strengths, I'm, I'm like your cheerleader. If you are my people, if you are in my, you know, my sphere uh, of, of people, then like, I'm going to be your biggest cheerleader. You're going to call me on a bad day and I'm going to like help you work through it and build your confidence. You're going to call me on a good day. I'm going to shout from the rooftops about it. And I think that my ability to build energy with folks is a really important asset to this work. Um, and it's something that I, I think a lot about in terms of like, what level of energy am I bringing to a conversation? Because Entrepreneurship is truly the loneliest and hardest road you could choose to travel. We all in this work need a hype squad. We need people who like get it in ways that others just can't, even if they want to, right? Your partner, your family, like if they're not experiencing the burden of having all of the decisions on their shoulders or of, you know, the the financials or whatever the thing might be, being able to turn to someone who can just say like, yeah, I hear that. That's tough. That's really tough. Maybe you should take a nap today. And like just having someone give permission, I think that's where like my role of 
of like the slowness and sustainability oftentimes comes in is just giving folks permission. Cause that's not, that's not what, you know, if you look at Instagram, everyone's already making a million dollars a month. Not the messaging that we're used to as people who want to do cool things in the world, right? Usually the messaging is like some version of like, suck it up, buttercup, and work those extra hours and do, 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 go, go, go. So this invitation to say, I believe that you can be really successful in your business and also take a nap today, I think kind of blows people's minds. It does. And some people are just like, thanks. I, I needed that, you know, or like I had, I had one of our founders who has a product that she, you know, ships out once a month, call me and say like, we have COVID today and we're supposed to send something out. Like, what do I do? Do I like email everybody? Do I do the things? And I was like, breathe. That's what you need to do first. People are going to be fine if they get their product two days late. Cause you're going to go email them and you're going to say, Hey, we live in COVID. We have COVID if you want, right? COVID has happened here. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I, I think that sometimes just having people hold up a mirror to what like the, the reality of the situation is versus again, what is the noise that we're used to hearing? I think the other thing that is really prolific is the only failure stories that oftentimes get told or remembered are by the people who already won. So like you know, there, there's a founder panel on how many times I've failed at building a startup. Oh yeah. So it's inevitably like the super successful people who are like, there was this one time when I got like a B minus on my math test and you're like that. Right. But like the, the environment we're trying to, to engineer with our founders again, because the having an interconnected network of founders is so critical to their success is a place where someone, you know, true story, someone walked in the door one day totally dejected at a cohort meeting and was like, I just got turned down for another bank loan. And having that founder be able to sit there and be like, that sucks. Like, I thought I was so prepared for that. I didn't, I don't understand these things, blah, blah, blah. Founder next to them turned, turned over and said, that happened to me too. Do you want me to introduce you to my banker? I found someone that I really trust. They ended up getting a line of credit for twice what they had applied for at the other places that they had been declined. You know, so this, uh, this ability to like, if that founder had not been able to walk in the room and say, if right, had gotten the better of them, or if they were in a culture where, yeah. you know, you can't say, I'm actually really struggling and here's the problem, then that connection couldn't have happened. Totally. And I, I think that, you know, as I think about my own self-awareness and identity, I'm, you know, running an equity-based organization that's focused on founders who identify as Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ, women, and non-binary. I am a white, heterosexual, cisgendered woman. So, you know, the span of how my identities intersect with all of those identities is, is relatively limited. So I think about that a lot in terms of how am I showing up and, and where is my identity able to connect with the conversation or the situation of others and where is it not? And then what? What needs to happen? Does somebody else's voice needs to be brought in? Do I need to step out? There's no right or wrong answer in a lot of those situations. But I think that 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 self-awareness of when my identity, you know, which is always present, is playing into a certain scenario, um, I think is really important. And I think folks have historically been kind of scared to kind of honor their own identities and their own experiences just for fear of saying the wrong thing or acting incorrectly. And I I understand that inclination. 
I've made a lot of mistakes in my career uh, as it as it relates to that. And I think that the ability to step into the place of okay, how do I want to how do I want to show up next time? That again, that self self awareness, self reflection, like that sense of like I'm learning, I'm emerging, I'm still working at it. I haven't arrived. <laughs> yeah, and we have so much information at our fingertips, literally, that you know if you have the curiosity to to practice that self-awareness. There's a lot of resources available. I was reading or I came across a an article in Harvard Business Review and it's it like helps me to know something with numbers that I knew already but didn't know no no in this way. I love numbers. I'm very excited to hear what you're <laughs> Well they were talking about how I think it was in 2020 only 2.7% of venture funding went to women-owned businesses which I, I know this is your world, so you're not surprised, but I was just like, that's a very small number. It's incredibly small. There's a, a couple of other stats I'm going to share that might also blow your mind. Bring the numbers. I'd ha- I'm going to have to look it up, but we found a study that was done in 2019 that asked the broader venture capital space anonymously. I can look at the actual data sets and whatnot, but do women receive enough venture capital? And 86% of respondents said, yeah, they do. And that was with the knowledge that women receive about 2%. The other thing that's really important to note in that is that is predominantly white women. Uh, Black women since 2009 have received about 0.0006% of all venture capital dollars. That equates to about $29 million, which on its own sounds big, you know, relative to a trillion it's real little. Yeah. 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 So I, I think that like, you know, from the context of, of this space and where we're at the access, you know, Luna, we talk about three types of capital, social capital, not just what you know, but who, you know, inspiration capital. Are there folks around you who can shine a light on success or can you be that for your community? And then finally financial capital. And we see pervasively and consistently across the ecosystem that Women and people of color, especially women of color, lack access at all three points that are required really for for success of any startup. Um, And the data is quite staggering. I think what's even more staggering about that, Sherry, is that last year, the total amount of venture capital that went to women-owned firms decreased by 22%. Oh, so it got worse. It got worse. Great. Yeah. How How do you interact with these stats as a human? I mean, obviously you're... The business that you're working in, you're putting so much of your energy and momentum toward providing opportunities and correcting what is an egregious imbalance. But how do you how do you deal with the days of discouragement where you're like, oh, the numbers are so different? That's a good question. I can't say that it doesn't impact me, and I don't think about that. You know, especially as like a mother, I think about that a lot, and like the number of women like myself who have toddlers that are launching new businesses and what their experience is like, right. Or the number of women that left workforce last year. I think about it a lot. And I think that the benefit of being a person who thinks in like long-term timelines is that I have to believe in the long-term systems change. I have to believe that this is not permanent. I have to believe that And it will get better. That it will get better and that we can change this and that people are going to jump on. And I I think part of that, it's, there's no silver bullet here, right? This is 
hearts and minds. This is data. This is support systems. This is literally who's controlling capital. This is so much. And the good news is that there are a lot of things that are happening and are going well. You know, we're seeing massive increases in the number of women who are getting into angel investing, you know, who previously had only been in charge of how their family's philanthropic dollars were invested. You know, now they're thinking about that from a business perspective. We're seeing increased you know, numbers of women and people of color participating in startup accelerators, which is fantastic. I, you know, a founder that goes through a startup accelerator is 23% higher survival rate five years out than a company that doesn't, right? So there's some real benefits there. We're seeing an influx of women and people of color in VC, like who is literally controlling capital, right? They still have to raise their funds and their funds are not raising at the same level as their counterparts, so, you know, there's there's like this weird intersection of like trickle down plus these systems and whatnot. But I think like there's also like capitalism at the root of it is a zero sum game. And we really need to encourage people to like challenge that notion of this false binary of of if someone has something, then I have not. Because the truth is, is that you know, if there are more women and people of color getting access to capital, there will be more jobs. There will be more, you know, benefit to the economy. There's more for everyone. Yeah. It's literally better for everyone. There's like no downside. <laughs> There's zero downside. And I think that the, the other aspect of that is that we have historically, I think, labeled maybe supporting women and people of color in entrepreneurship as charity work. Not business, just something like nice and right? schmushy to do. Yeah, like this is the right thing to do. This is the moral obligation of this community is to help these poor small business owners. Small business is the engine of this economy. And the fact that we put so much emphasis on, you know, these major corporations, right? It's a little bit backwards. We need to change that dynamic a little bit. I think a $20 million company is outrageously interesting and compelling for our community. Absolutely. It's a great life for the founder. It employs people. It provides a service or a product. Like those are the, the bread and butter of, of the business. Yeah, literally the bread and butter of our country. And, and who's going to continue to make sure that we bounce back from recession after recession that we fit, we hit, right? But we can't stop just encouraging these founders to have one, two, 10, 15 employees. Like the reality is, is there's potential for growth. And I'm not saying, you know, every company needs to go and be a unicorn, right? That's like what venture capital is trying to, to get to at the core thesis. But I do think that there is space in our economy to value, you know, those $20 million companies or hundred, you know, what those smaller companies in tandem for the value that they create for the community with some of these larger ones. And I think that's the, that's the paradigm shift that we need is really a, a value system of like, what do we, what is truly important in our community and our economy? Who's hardest to convince about this need for a shift in values? It's a good question. I think, you know, people that have been operating in this system for a really long time, this is what they know. Um, this is what they're comfortable with. They're definitely more challenging to say like, but why, why do we need this? The other folks that I find are challenged by this notion are those, again, that think they're going to lose something, that they have to give up. There are fewer spaces at the table. Then yes, exactly. That by making the table bigger, you know, we inherently take away seats from certain folks. And and the truth is that that's just not 
the reality of it. But that's really hard to see and demonstrate. And and if I'm honest, it's a place that I'm looking to be able to be more inviting for people. Right? I'm on. I'm in a specific space in my journey. You know, whether it relates to my own internalized misogyny or anti-racism or some of these other things and to be patient and to know that not everybody's at the same place that I am. And there's people further along and further back. And I want to invite more people into this work because I think that the fear of losing, you know, the fear of not understanding the fear that, that is driven by it. A lot of the questions around like, why would we do this? You know, it's symptomatic of kind of the great divide that we're seeing in this country right now. And I want to hope that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. It's a tricky thing to turn down fear because fear is so loud. It's so powerful. It's such a primary emotion that like, we all need for safety. So it has a, a really important function in the human psyche, but it's a difficult one to come up against because it, it isn't often assuaged by data. It's not an intellectual problem. It's, it operates in a deeper place within us. Yeah. I'm curious how, how that feels for you. Cause I know, I feel like that's probably something you bump up against all the time. A hundred percent. We bump up against it in every way, shape and form. I'll start yeah. with the founder, <laughs> within right? Yourself, within founders, within, oh yes, yeah. within the larger world, but yeah. Totally. So the founders, right? Fear of failure, that's just like relevant, right? Everybody is going to have some amount of fear of failure. Your risk tolerance is just going to be relative to that and, and relative to what your family can bear, I think. There's fear of judgment. A lot of our founders have, you know, we've had some founders walk into an investor pitch and, you know, one woman has been told her hair is not professional because she's wearing braids. Another one has been told she's not black enough literal conversations that our founders have had fear of walking into a room and, you know, standing in front of a, I personally have a, a, this inherent fear that regardless of what I know about a group, if I'm walking in front of a large panel of men in business suits, it, I get this moment of like, are they seeing me? Are they seeing a woman in front of them? Are they seeing my intelligence? Are they seeing my body? I have a really hard time disentangling that. And I think that the, the fear that drives, whether it's investors or founders or consumers, you know, there's some consumers who are afraid of the future we're leaving our children. So they are only buying products, right? So sometimes fear is a good motivator too. I think the, there's, there's two sides to that coin. But I think fear as an inhibitor for progress is the most dangerous. It goes against so much of what we sort of were talking about in the earlier part of our conversation related to self-awareness, to flexibility, to being able to be resilient and adjust because fear, especially fear that is in the form of resistance is very frozen. It's a wall. It's a barrier. I think sometimes when we're trying to make change in our lives or in the world and we come up against that, that wall kind of energy, <laughs> can feel so discouraging, but remembering that it is really based in fear, I think can sometimes humanize it a little bit. Totally. And I, I think being able to kind of like look at that fear, like imagine it's, you know, a ball of yarn in front of you and trying to untangle it. Sometimes if you're able to do that, when you're in those paralyzing moments, you know, sometimes you realize that like, oh, this fear is not about this moment. This fear is about when I was five, <laughs> you know, or this fear is about this experience I had two years ago. 
And not to say that that should change how you experience that fear, but sometimes the noticing and the naming of what the fear is and where it's coming from can help you get to a, a position of action. And I, th- I think that's where we come in a lot at Lunar is working with our founders to be able to identify like, what are the sticky points? What are the challenges? What are the issues that they're facing and what's within their control? That's the most important thing is like, what is within their control? Cause anything that's outside of their control, they can try and influence maybe sometimes, but for the most part, focusing on what's in their control is going to be what helps them to get into like a higher sense of performance and purpose and efficiency and all of that. It's, it's funny. We see it on the flip side a lot when that need for control for founders comes out like a little bit backwards, like the average, I don't actually know the number, but I could say within our cohorts, the average number of emails, like email, you know, at Gmail or at Lunar Startups or at whatever, like email accounts that our founders have has to be like, like eight to 10. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. Because... Going and signing up for an email account with a brand or a name or a thing, you can control that. It's an actionable item. It goes back to that checklist. Check it off the list. Check it off. Right. (laughs) And then we'll send them an email and they'll be like, oh, I don't check that email anymore. I'm like, you're creating a little bit of chaos here. (laughs) And usually it's just an indicator that they're feeling flustered. They're feeling like there's too many fires. So they picked the fire that felt like right in front of them. And again, that's where we come in is like, okay. Let's notice a name, all, all of these things, and let's create an action plan for how to get them out of your way. And I think that, you know, we do it in a formal capacity, but having a community of founders is, is how most people do it informally, right? Having that sanity check, the, the person who's like, don't worry about that one, worry about this other thing, or let's give your attention to that because it's more controllable. And all these other thoughts that are swirling in your head are are what ifs that may or may not happen. And we'll have to worry about them if they do materialize. Yeah. And and not only that, like we really require founders to be these superheroes of their own experience, because not only do they have to be able to like list and identify all their challenges, they also have to just absorb immense amounts of opinions and advice, and like feedback and decide what they should take action on. It really is a superpower they have to develop, you know, and we talk about it explicitly because not everyone's just like innately born with that ability. Um, I don't actually think anybody is, but that, you know, it's like a muscle, like flexing. There's a couple different muscles we talk about, like asking for help. That's a muscle. You got to develop that one. Being able to determine what's good advice, what's you know important to listen to and what's like decision informing, right? Those are like all different. Yep different layers of advice. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's hard. It's so hard. Yeah. Especially when it's whatever your, whatever question you're asking as a founder is important, right? You wouldn't bring it to the table if it didn't matter. And because you're probably doing this for the first time, even if you've had a business before, each business is different. So you're at this place for the first time. And it's a particularly painful position where it really matters I don't really know what to do. I don't have the expertise or experience. And then you kind of survey your crew and often get very, very different pieces of recommendations, pieces of data that can create even more paralysis. Totally. I think that's what's interesting about there's um, been this massive push for people to volunteer and mentor entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. There's a double-edged sword there. I think 
especially as it relates to the folks that are showing up. They want to do good and do well. And so they're trying to, you know, mentor more entrepreneurs of color when, for example, like me as a white woman wanting to come in and mentor more entrepreneurs of color. The important context around that though, is that especially entrepreneurs of color and women entrepreneurs, they're over-mentored and under-invested from a capital perspective, but also from a sponsorship perspective. So when we think about the volume of advice they have to filter, it's actually significantly higher than their white male counterparts. I'll give you another example of that. So a few years ago here in the Twin Cities, someone did an analysis of like, on average, how many coffees does it take you to find someone who can help you move the needle on your business? Predominantly white white male respondents, um, six. We asked the same question to our initial communities when we were getting started, and the answer was 36. So there's not only like a time differential, there's like a context and, and volume of advice differential, but then there's also the lack of, not lack of, how do I want to say this? Like the difference of experience that those people are imparting their advice. They don't share the same identities, the same socioeconomic backgrounds, the same cultural backgrounds. And so oftentimes they're giving advice that they was helpful for them and has been really important. And the founder is then required to kind of like filter through and like see through, okay, what actually applies to me? Mm -hmm. What actually really fits me? Yeah. And I think that that, that like, it's hard to name and quantify and talk about that, but it's one of the reasons we don't, we don't do a mentorship program. You know, we, we ask for people to come in and be stewards. We ask for people to come in and give discreet tactical support and advice because our, our founders are, are just at baseline forced to take in so much more already. That's a really interesting thing for people to be aware of because it's certainly not immediately obvious as a problem, but I, it absolutely is a problem to have kind of the fire hose of perhaps context less advice pointed at you constantly and try to sort through that as you're starting your business. Well, and I think the the tension that a lot of our founders feel is it's always with good intention. Sure. Right. It's given kindly, like with oh, oh, with such generosity, whether it's like time, the advice, all of it, like the coffee at baseline, like it's it's given with generosity. But the actual impact of it on the other side, it is different in terms of, of how it gets activated and what that happens. And I think that I don't know what the solution is for that, but it's something that I think about constantly. Every time I have another company or corporation who's like, how can our employees volunteer with you? And I say, they can't. They can't. Yeah, we kind of need, like, we'd like money, maybe. We need dollars. We need cash. <laughs> <laughs> Get a second job to help. No, <laughs> but, and I think that's in a way like the lever that needs to be pulled, right? It's the lever of dollars. Well, and not only that, you know, corporate America pledged $50 billion to black communities um, in 2020. Mm-hmm. Would you like to venture to guess how much has been deployed? I don't even want to. I think it will make me sad. It will. Um, it's it's uh, 4%. Who's um who's following up on that? Uh, there's a, a writer at Inc. Um, they did an article middle of last year. Forgive me. I can look up his name. We could put it in the show notes. Um, and I just recently sent him another note and I said, I would love for a follow-up on this. And I, it would be really helpful if you were able to disaggregate the pledges that have actually been volunteer hours versus dollars. Because what we're finding is that most of the dollars are spent because the actual pledges were in volunteer hours. Okay. 
pro bono consulting, advising, going out to the community and painting lockers, like whatever it might be. I mean, cool, but not also not, not actually what might be most helpful. Yeah. There's a couple of high schools here in town who get their lockers painted once a month. Really pretty, really pretty lockers. They always look good. (laughs) But that's, you know, that was before COVID. But I think it's an example of like, you know, the the basis of philanthropy is, you know, folks want to do good and feel good. And sometimes that means like sacrificing and giving time and energy and like literal movement of your body, right? Um, It's a lot harder to give money. It's incredibly challenging. I, I don't actually have too much criticism for people that like, you know, struggle with that or would rather give time over money because whether it's cultural or like our, our irrational economics brain, I have one too. It comes up at weird times. I I think that the way we have been engineered to give back and to help out, we're just changing what we know about what that means. And I think like moving away from like colonial style philanthropy and support and really trying to like, how do we Again, how do we reimagine our value systems so that communities and cultures that do emphasize slowness, that do emphasize community, that do emphasize breaking bread, how do we adopt that in or or like honor that and value that instead of critiquing it or saying, you know, having opinions about how those dollars are spent for a meal? I I don't know. There's there's all kinds of specificity that matters so much. And that's where when when communities have access to funds, they often do a good job for their own community. They do a good job for their own business, for the communities that they serve. And not only that, they reinvest at higher rates yeah. in their community. I think we've had we've definitely had some of our founders who get docked by investors or banks by because they're not pushing to maximize revenue, because they're incorporating projects or components or internship models that do draw from maximizing that revenue, but it's investing in the community. The net return is good for everyone, but, but we don't have a good system of measuring that and for, for being able to share that value in the context of like, what's the highest return for your investors versus the highest return for the community. I don't have right answers there. There's a lot of really smart people all over the world that are working on that, but thinking about how to do that. yeah, yeah. Well, I love that these are things that you are thinking about and and bringing this conversation to the forefront of as many people who will sit down for that coffee with you or listen to that podcast. It's really, really good work. Well, thank you. For folks that want to learn more about what you're doing about Lunar, um, what's the best way for people to friendly and appropriately stalk you online? I, I love a good friendly and appropriately talking online. Um, we are everywhere you are on social media at Lunar Startups, including TikTok. I think if you're an entrepreneur, Instagram is the best bet for how to get our vibe, our values, and, and what we're doing. It's also where we like to brag about our founders. Every mon- Monday, we do an awesome reels bragging about our founders. Um, LinkedIn is where we have a lot of the more informative stuff. You know, there's a lot of folks sending us really great opportunities every single day, and we try to share that out with the community at large. Our website, www.lunarstartups.org. Um, you can find me in all those same places at Danielle J. Steer. S-T-E-E-R. Like the cow. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. It's been really a great conversation. Thank you for having me, Sherry. I really appreciate all this work and your gifts that you're sharing with founders. 
Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.